This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. A lot on the agenda today. We'll start by discussing Jordan Henderson's interview in The Athletic. Then on to Manchester United lurching into another crisis with Brazil dropping Anthony from their squad over accusations of domestic violence. On a depressingly similar subject, Sid Lowe's here to give us the reaction to Mason Greenwood joining Getafe. We'll also talk Rubiales, still there and still digging. We'll get the latest on that. Then there's some Bellingham and Cazorla to make us feel better. Some reflection on how football's faring in Turkey after the earthquake. A tactics question for Jonathan Wilson. Cambridge United's huge 1-0 victory over Reading on Monday Night Football. A vital Bolton apology from me. Dolls Houses, your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nick Ames, welcome. Hello, Max. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Hello, Jonathan Wilson. Morning. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Hi, Max. So about two hours before we're recording this, Jordan Henderson's interview with The Athletic uh, was released. He spoke to David Ornstein and Adam Crafton. It's worth mentioning Adam Crafton. I mean, he's a brilliant journalist. Uh, He is gay um, and asked him some very, very interesting questions about Jordan Henderson and his support for the LGBTQ plus community in the past and uh, what's happened since he moved to Saudi Arabia. Um, they released the transcript. Uh, there was no video and no audio. Um, Henderson claimed he had no intention of leaving Liverpool this summer. Uh, and he was asked about uh, the backlash from the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, Barry, your reaction to a, uh, having just read it, I'll read out some pieces as we go, I guess. Yeah, I've read it twice. And I suppose straight off the bat, I'd have to say I have a smidgen of sympathy for Jordan Henderson because he's been punished now for being one of the few players who in the past were willing to put their heads above the parapet uh, when it comes to being an ally of LGBTQ plus community. Um, but, and, and I have a lot of buts, I don't think he addresses the criticism that has come his way, and there's been a hell of a lot of it, um, anyway adequately in this interview. He says in the interview that he can understand the frustration of the LGBTQ plus community at what they see as a betrayal. He says, I can understand it, but all I can say around that is that I'm sorry that they feel like that. 
Now, I think he could have ended that sentence at sorry. That's very much a non-apology apology. You know, I'm I'm sorry you feel that way. It's it's textbook. He also says in the, in the interview, I think people know what my views and values were before I left and still do now. And I think nothing could be further from the truth. I think people thought they knew what his views and values were before he left. And now they think um, that he was just, it was a PR move or that he sold out for cash despite the fact that in the interview he said money was not a factor in his decision. I don't believe that for a second. I just don't buy that. And he presents it as if he only had two choices, coming on for 10 minutes in games with Liverpool or moving to Saudi Arabia. It comes across that these are the only two options that he had. And um, I don't believe that either. I'm sure if money wasn't a factor, I'm sure there's plenty of clubs would be delighted to happen. Um, and he says, oh, I'd have been criticised whatever I did. That's not the case. No one would have criticised him if he moved to Brentford or Sevilla or Marseille. Uh, would anyone think badly of him if he went back to Sunderland and helped mentor all the kids that make up Tony Mowbray's squad? No, I think they'd all think very highly of him. But, uh, yeah, I suppose I've said enough now. Time to let someone else have a, get a word in. Uh, yeah, I do care about different causes that I've been involved in and different communities. I do care. And for people to criticise and say that I turn my back on them really, really hurt me. My intention was never, ever to hurt anyone. My intention has always been to help causes and communities where I feel like they've asked for my help. And he does talk, Nick, about, you know, wanting to build the league in another country. And he also talks about not wanting to... And he also talks about wanting to respect the culture. And I actually thought Adam Crafton's questions were very good because it's easy on a forum like this to criticise someone. When you are face-to-face with someone and you're pushing an issue, it's harder to do it. And I thought Adam asked him very good questions on on that specific subject. Yeah, I I thought Adam did superbly to to keep going, keep going, following up, following up, which, as you say, is 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 not easy when someone's face to face with you. Um, there was a line where 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 um, Henderson said, "What I wouldn't do is disrespect the religion and culture in Saudi Arabia. If we're all saying everyone can be who they want to be and everyone's inclusive, then we have to respect that. We have to to respect everyone." Um, but he's tying himself in knots there, isn't he? Because uh, a lot of the issue with the laws there is that you can't respect everyone and you can't be inclusive. And I think um, what I think this whole interview is, I, 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 I don't think he doesn't believe what he's saying. I don't necessarily think he's not being particularly sincere. And, you know, he's done the interview he's chosen to do it with a journalist like Adam who he knows is going to press him and he's made that point at the end but I think there's a a lot here of what a bubble footballers live in and the information or lack of information they they surround themselves with and and how how sort of credulous they they kind of can be there's a line later on as well where he says well went to Qatar heard a lot about the workers and then we met the workers and I'm, I'm very much I'm paraphrasing here because I haven't got it in front of me you know there's a few of us who can tell him what the situation really was like for workers um, over there and Henderson, Henderson and the England players didn't even scratch the surface of it so he's clearly in that case accepted very much the manicured version of events that is presented to him and here he seems to um, to have done that too and I don't know whether that is just simply the fact that footballers, however earnest they might be or might come across as, are not 
just live in such a bubble that they can't understand well enough or, or take the right advice um, to, to make the, um, the right decisions because he's tying himself in knots quite a bit there. He says on the subject of whether the Saudis told him what he could or couldn't say, Wilson, he said they, they knew before signing... They knew what my beliefs were. They knew what causes and campaigns I've done in the past. Not once was it brought up. Not once have they said, you can do this, you can't do this. It can only be a positive thing to try and open up. Like around Qatar, that's where you try to create positive change. I'm not saying I can do that. I'm one person. Uh, what did you make of it? Well, okay, fine. What steps is he taking? Yeah, that would be my obvious question. Fine. If, 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 if you genuinely think you can be like sort of a, an agent on the inside, great. But what what does that mean? So you then have the, the and I know he addresses it in, in the interview, uh, the the uh, video to introduce him when the rainbow armband was you know, turned into black and white. He could have come out immediately and said, "Look, that's whether whether that's the intention of the club or not. That looks like you're, you're whitewashing or greywashing what uh, what I've stood for in the past." And he could have taken a stand on that, and he didn't. So if the last steps he's he's planning, well, fine, but just being there isn't enough. And yeah, we we heard this back Do people think Qatar's any better now than it was a year ago? Has the World Cup changed anything in Qatar? Of course it hasn't. By the standard of player Saudi Arabia have bought, you know, he's decent professional, but he's he's not sprinkled in stardust. But he is uh, a former England captain who has, in the past, stuck up for, uh, publicly stuck up for uh, those in the gay community, and now Saudi Arabia have bought him to their league. And uh, is that them saying, look, we we can get anyone. We can get this guy who's um, stuck up for members of the LGBTQ plus community in the past. If we can get him, we can get anyone. This was an excellent interview. It was an outstanding interview and hats off to David and Adam for doing it. There's a couple of things I'd like to have heard, though, or like to know. And it, Did he know Adam was gay on, before it came up in the interview? Uh, was he pressurised by his representatives to go to Saudi Arabia or to do this interview? And I'd like to know what, what his wife thinks of the move. But the, these weren't addressed. And I can't stress enough, it's not a criticism, but they are things I, w- I would like to have known by the time I finished reading it. The point that Nick makes about the footballer bubble, there's also uh, a footballer mentality. And if you read as many footballers autobiographies uh, or, or talk to as many you know, former footballers as, as, as I have over the last 20 odd years, you, you see this time and again, that there's this real determination to portray themselves. I don't want to say as the victim, because that's slightly too, too negative a term. But they're the people who have to prove themselves that they they have somehow been done down by somebody, and this idea of oh well, Liverpool didn't want me, nobody at the club said they wanted me. Like, do we really believe that? And even if that is true, as Barry says, it's it's not that this was the only alternative. There's a dozen Premier League clubs who have taken him. Every Championship club would have taken him. There's plenty of other countries in the world he could have gone to. The only reason, the only thing that makes Saudi Arabia different to everywhere else is the money is much, much better. And so then to say, well, it wasn't about the money. Well, did, did he look anywhere else? Did he really ring around every MLS club and say, yeah, do you fancy giving us a contract? Did he ring around everywhere in Germany and France and Spain, Italy? I, I mean, it's the, the the idea that he's somehow been forced into this and, 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 and 
the sense that this has been been forced upon him. I, I, I as I say, I've, I've you see that a lot in footballers, and I think it's a real, it's a, it's a way they get out of taking responsibility, and I don't think it's healthy. There's an interesting thing he does say that he spoke to people who challenge him before he made the move, uh, and that he, you know, he has friends and family from the LGBTQ plus community. He's also asked if he is paid by Saudi Arabia for his social media posts, and he says he's not. And I suppose it is interesting to think what his, Nick, what his kind of, he will have sat down to decide which interview to do, whether to do an interview, you know, how to do it. And I wonder if he, in a way, you sort of think this this is not the necessarily the easiest option, but it won't necessarily have the result that he wants. I'm going back to what Barry said. I, I got the impression from his final answer that he did know before the interview that Adam is gay. So I... I think he knew knew that he was setting himself up for you know some tough questions, but I I, I genuinely think and I don't want to keep going back to the bubble thing because it sounds it sounds maybe a bit simplistic, but I think he's probably so so sure that what he's doing has has the right intentions by him that he feels there's not a lot to hide, and I just think it's because footballers are often so so deprived of the kind of information, or deprived themselves of the kind of information, and also agency, which I think is key, to to make better choices. I don't know whether I'm letting him off the hook there. I don't think I am. I think it's the opposite. I think footballers should better inform themselves, and I think in the, in the United Kingdom, more than quite a lot of European countries, this is actually a bit of an issue with our players. You hear it when you interview quite a lot of England squads. So um, so I don't think I'm letting him off the hook by saying that. I feel kind of bad dragging him like this, and I think he's going to get an awful lot of criticism for this interview, and he's made a badish situation for himself worse, not by doing it, but by with the answers he's given, because I think he's a good guy who's probably made a bad career move, and he may regret it. If not, if he isn't regretting it already, and from what I've heard, um, oh, from Paul McInnes's piece when he was blown out of his arms after 15 minutes playing in, you know, horrific heat in his opening game. Um, yeah, I, I, I think in time he will, he will probably confess publicly that I shouldn't have done hmm. this. I mean, I guess the criticism we will get is that we're not criticising other players for going who haven't said anything before, but obviously we've... And, and that's true. And I, Well, I addressed that in my opening remarks, Malud. Yes, you did. When I said that I do sympathise with him on that front because other players who've gone and getting a completely free pass for the sole reason that they've never, you know, stuck their head up and, and supported anyone. And equally, I, I should say that I have in the past worked for papers in both Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and I deeply regret that now. Um... It was yeah, you know, and and the reason was I was offered jobs from them when I didn't have much money, and it never occurred to me to question who owned those papers or what they represented. Um, but with hindsight, you know, if, if I knew then what I know now, I would I'd like to think I wouldn't have done it. And please, I wouldn't accept an offer now. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to give you a pass because you're a mate, and I don't know Jordan Henderson. But I sort of feel there is a sliding scale of principles. If you don't have money and you are paid, that is different to. Well, no, no, but I mean, I, I, I don't think that lets me off the hook at all. 
my my excuse as much as there is one is I was ignorant. Yeah. And whereas Jordan Henderson cannot say yeah. he's ignorant because he's he's been through sure. it all with Qatar. But I also find it very hard in the reaction where people say, you know, you have to look after your family. Like that is true. We all have to look after our family. But if you've been paid 150, 200 grand a week for the best part of 10 years, you have enough money to look after your family, right? Even if you have, I mean, I don't know, you know, like I haven't looked at his family tree. He hasn't does hasn't done who do you think you are? I don't think he has like a billion cousins. But even still, he did say, if you have gay Muslims in those countries, nothing's changing. Even looking in this country, I'm sure same-sex marriage nine, ten years ago wasn't legal, but in time things change, things evolve, things open up. And I'm hope hopefully that's the case everywhere. That's what I want. I'm like, I don't know if I'm giving you too much credit to say he's kind of saying gay marriage should be legalized there. I mean, homosexuality is still criminalized there. So that that is not going to happen anytime soon. And maybe, you know, I don't know if that is what he was suggesting. Uh, probably not. But I would have been interested if he was asked that question directly. But I think as we all agree, I think they did a really excellent job because I quite often have found when I'm actually confronting someone or asking them questions, I'm not as good at being forceful as when they're not in the room as Jordan Henderson isn't in the on the zoom call right would change what the conversation would be the only other bit of criticism we'll get is people saying look the criticism of Saudi Arabia is buying football is something that the Premier League did years ago and I just think it's important to state that you know the criticism is not really about the money it's about the human rights abuses in that country and it is state-owned and that is a, a big demarcation between that and the Premier League, which isn't. It doesn't mean we love the the fact that, you know, sides at the bottom of the Premier League can compete with top sides in Serie A for players. But I think there is a big, big difference. But we have had tweets about that sort of thing in the past when we're talking about this issue. Anyway, that'll do for uh, part one. Uh, part two, Sid Lowe will join us from Spain. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. We're going on tour. Uh, tickets still available in London on the 13th of November. Ellis James, Troy Townsend, Philippe Claire joining for that. Bristol's sold out. It says here very close to a sellout. I think it's sold out. But anyway, have a check. Mark Langdon, Jordan Jarrett, Bryan, and a Bristolian guest star. 
who likes car parks. Uh, the 15th of Manchester, John Bruin, Nadia Manuha, the Will Unwin anecdote. Uh, still a few tickets there. Dublin sold out on the 20th, almost sold out on the 21st. Uh, me, Barry Lars and Jonathan Wilson. And uh, a few tickets left in Brighton. Uh, me, Barry, Nicky Mandini, Johnny Lou. That is live streamed around the world. So you can all come. Theguardian.com slash FWTour23. If you watch the live stream or if you buy the live stream, you can watch it. Of a week afterwards if you can't come live also we've got a book out guardianbookshop.com slash football that's enough things to try and foist upon you today uh sid low joins us hey sid morning max uh now before we do um spanish news obviously the anthony story broke last night um uh, there are uh, clear um uh, links with that and the mason greenwood story which we'll get to you sid on, on his move to getafe brazil have withdrawn anthony from their latest squad following serious allegations made by his former girlfriend, Gabriela Cavain, of physical assault and uh, the claim the player threatened to kill her and attacked her with a glass. The Brazilian website UOL reported the accusations, uh, which Anthony called false on Monday. Uh, a fortnight after Mason Greenwood was forced to leave Manchester United after rape charges against him were dropped. The Brazil Football Confederation statement read, as a result of the facts that have come to light and which need to be investigated and in order to safeguard the supposed victim, the player and the Brazilian national team, the CBF have, have withdrawn him from the squad. Anthony denies the accusations in a statement said, I can say with tranquility that I'm innocent of the accusations that have been made. My relationship was tumultuous with insults made on both sides, but never did I commit any act of physical aggression. Anthony claimed his accuser had repeatedly changed her story over the alleged attacks. Therefore, I vehemently deny these accusations and would like to make it clear that I remain willing to clear up whatever is necessary to Brazilian authorities. Um, Brazil have made a stand. Nick, do Manchester United follow? What pressure are Manchester United under to drop him? With Mason Greenwood, they obviously took quite a stand. It's, it's hard to know. Brazil have obviously taken a lead. I think Manchester United will be very conscious of, of past events as well with Greenwood and the perception of how they handled those events. Um, it just depends what is in the public domain. And I guess United might ask themselves whether it is, is as sort of visual as with the Greenwood case. Um, but there will definitely be a lot of pressure. I, I'm not sure whether I would rely on Manchester United to do the right thing, whatever the right thing is, uh, based on past evidence. Now, I guess the question, Barry, is, is should the club, and it's a question we had about Greenwood, should Manchester United be deciding this? Do, do these things need to be taken out of clubs' hands? Well, you've asked me this question before, and I said possibly, but... I don't think you need to hand it over to someone else. It's quite a straightforward decision to make. And if he's facing charges, I would say, then he probably needs to be suspended. Mason Greenwood was pictured at Getafe for the first time yesterday evening, Sid, uh, since his loan deal from, from Manchester United was sealed on deadline day. What has the reaction been to the move? Well, there really hasn't been a reaction yet. Um Obviously, you'll have seen the, the the footage from the from the Friday night when the when the move was was announced, and there's this footage of, of a group of fans outside the stadium. It's around about midnight, kind of jumping around and celebrating when they're told about this. And and I, I know a lot of people picked up on that and said, "Oh, this is a, a terrible response." But I, I think the context of that is is that this is kind of 
in part, I think it's a sort of a setup video to, you know, as, as a way of announcing. Yeah, I didn't know it was real. I wondered if it was actors. It, it, yeah, actually. well, I mean, it would have been fans, I suppose, but it's the easy thing of, hey, fans, come down to the ground, we'll film you. You'll be on clubs, media channels. I think that's 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 kind of quite a straightforward thing. And it was it was here. We've got some players, and everyone cheers. And at that point, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not convinced anybody's really contemplating or thinking about the you know the the, the, the deeper uh, significance of it. There, there was no response beyond that. Obviously, there's been a real enthusiasm from from Getafe's um, social media, and uh, particularly the fact that Getafe, by the way, have only recently started having social media in English. I mean, this is you know they've been the last of the first division clubs to do it, and and, and Mason Greenwood has given them the opportunity. And the the word sticks in my throat a little bit to use the word opportunity, but given the opportunity to to do this, and they've been very very kind of excited about it. And look at this, and here's his shirt, and doing all the things that clubs do when they sign a player. And I suppose. In part, you would say, well, if you're going to sign the player, then you do do all of these things. You know, if you sign a player and then kind of pretend you haven't, then there's, you know, then, then, then what did you sign him for? Um, he gets presented this evening at the stadium, but he gets presented with two other players. So it's not just him. And there won't be questions. So it won't be a presentation as they usually are with the media asking questions. Now, at this stage, I don't know the answer to this, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if, of course, one of the reasons why there are no questions is Manchester United not just Getafe themselves. So there hasn't really been a response yet. I think in part because there hasn't been a kind of a step back of people saying, oh, okay, this is Mason Greenwood. This is what we're looking at here. Um, I honestly don't know if there will be much of one. But of course, with Spain, of course, this is this is a very live issue because it comes in the context of everything that's happened over the last couple of weeks with, with Rubiales. Yeah, of course. And we'll get to Rubiales in a second. Just on the Manchester United thing, Wilson, I mean, you wrote a piece before this Anthony News came out about all the problems, and this only adds to it, doesn't it, in what is a very difficult situation for sort of everybody there. Yeah, it it does. I mean, it feels almost trivial to speak about the footballing problems, but I think you started to see on on Sunday Ten Hag looking under pressure for the first time. Those attacks on referees uh, were were ludicrous. I mean, he must know, complaining about the angle of VAR makes, makes no sense at all. And so for the first time, you know, he looks like he, he's not this sort of you know, st- steely-eyed captain leading the ship through stormy waters. And a lot of the problems uh, go back years. And, and you know, we can talk about recruitment, we can talk about lack of players coming through. But you now have this additional problem um, that they have players who have been accused of pretty unpleasant things and the club doesn't seem particularly good at dealing with it. And that just sort of adds to this whole sense of a club that's totally lost lost its compass, moral and tactical and, you know, footballistically. Mm. And it was widely understood that Eric Ten Hag was in favour of Greenwood coming back. When, and we talked, Nick, about him making all the big decisions right at the start of his tenure, right? He made the right decision about Ronaldo, about... Uh, De Gea about Harry Maguire it feels like that was like a, that is a big misstep and there will be all eyes to see on what happens won't there yeah massive massive misstep um, I think Wilson's right to say he looks um, under a lot of pressure now I was in, in the press conference on Sunday and you could kind of tell for the first time that he was saying stuff that maybe not even he really believed, you know. And uh, I mean, maybe apart from the Jaden Sancho situation, which is another issue he's got, but uh, and that'll be very interesting, by the way, to see how, how he handles it, given that he gave Sancho time off last season for a range, we were told, of physical and mental issues. Now, you know, if, 
if and we don't know the background, Sancho has had some some mental difficulties or personal difficulties. Why, why is he being bombed out now and hung out to dry? And in, in his words, called a state uh, called a um, a scapegoat. Now, this is different to allegations of, of, or charges or court cases of, of domestic abuse and that kind of thing. But it's the same kind of ballpark in that it's a difficult situation that the manager has got to handle and take a stand on and do the right thing with. And I think they're all, they're all stacking up for him now. And we haven't really yet seen any evidence that, yeah, he he has or can do the right thing, which, which, which is odd because he came in with this kind of, yeah, tough guy clarity image that is eluding him at the moment. There's there's a parallel here that 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 kind of that I feel like a that's almost worth drawing, which is that the manager becomes the 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 mouthpiece of the club. The manager becomes the the, the image of the club. The manager, if if a team plays what sixty games a season, the manager does one hundred and twenty press conferences in a season, and then has to be, if you like, the face for decisions that, that quite often are not about him. Now, obviously, can't speak for Ten Hag and how much he is directing traffic in terms of what to do about Mason Greenwood. But you get an institution that makes a decision and a manager that then has to carry it in terms of the pressure. The reason I bring this up is because I was very, very conscious of this on Saturday when Getafe played at, at Real Madrid um, and, and Jose Bordelas, the, the manager, came into the press conference after the game and there were, there were, there were a series of questions about the game. There were two questions about Greenwood, um, myself and, 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 and from the, a guy from The Athletic. And I did sort of feel a bit... Sorry for Bordelas, but this isn't his decision. This isn't him that's brought Greenwood to the club. This isn't him that's brought this all upon himself. But it's it's the manager and Ten Hag being being obviously the the same case at Manchester, having to take on the okay. So I now have to take the moral responsibility for this. I now have to defend this or or, or manage this when it may not have been my decision. Admittedly, the bottom line, and certainly in Getafe's cases, they've got a player who, in theory, is a far higher level than they would have ever, ever expected to get normally. And so you do get this awkward thing of, to what extent do we load this onto Ten Hag and to what extent do we load this onto, onto Borderlass when they're, when they're faced with, with either a problem like this or obviously in footballing terms, they would say probably a solution like this. Back to Rubiales, Sid, who uh, released a statement. We did a longer episode last Tuesday, which I'd encourage anyone to listen to who hasn't. He put out an incredibly long statement of which I've got about a third of it, which is still incredibly long. Um, but I will read it for those of you who haven't kept across every second of this story. He said... On August the 20th, I made some mistakes, which I regret sincerely and from the heart. I have learned that no matter how great the joy is and deep the emotion, including a World Cup win, sports leaders should be required to exhibit exemplary behaviour and mine was not. Therefore, I reiterate once again my apologies for this to the footballers, the Federation and other football entities in a clear, emphatic and unmitigated manner. Also to football fans and to all those who may have been offended by my actions. I repeat... With the consent of both parties, both with affectionate hugs as well as the kiss and subsequent partying thereafter, full of affectionate mutual gestures which occurred in the medal ceremony on stage. Evidence, expert reports, documentation, videos have been provided and will continue to be provided. Pertinent evidence that proves the reality of what happened. Evidence is not opinions, it's clear facts. Throughout this period, I've suffered an unprecedented political and media lynching from which I have remained completely on the fringes, not only nationally but globally. Despite this, I have also felt the growing support of people on the street and on social media. It's time to thank you infinitely for your immense support, for believing me, for not getting carried away, 
by this campaign fabricated against me. Popular support reinforces for me the idea that this issue has been magnified and taken out of context for other reasons. I'll continue to defend myself to prove the truth. I want to send a message to all the good people in our country and beyond our borders, including those women who've really been abused and who have my full support and understanding. This isn't about gender. It's about the truth in the name of feminism. It must not be about trying to sink a man or a woman without a fair trial. Equality is about identical rights for everyone. Justice must be applied to people without the gender having an impact on the results. Um, there's no mention, Sid, of, of Jenny Hermoso in this. Uh, your reaction to everything that has happened, I guess, and specifically <laughs> that statement. Yeah, everything that happened. I mean, it's, just, it's quite a lot to pick through. And I, I think the, the, the kind of the fundamental thing when you take a step back is, is, is you look, and you look at how it, how it unfolded over the last two weeks is the kind of complete inability to do the right thing at any point, basically. Not, not, not just the starting point of all of this, but then everything that, that followed it. Um, and just listening to you read the statement, you, you're sort of taken, aren't you, by that initial line that, what does it say, what's the exact wording? I apologise unreservedly and without any kind of any kind of thing, but here comes the but. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But here's all those reservations that I just said I didn't have. Um, I'm not quite sure how, how this plays out now. I mean, we're in a curious situation where the, obviously the 90-day the, the inhabilitation was, was done by FIFA, the federation is now in, in, in temporary hands. The court of uh, sporting administration in Spain, which isn't actually a court, calling it a court is probably the wrong, the wrong word, decided that this was typified not as a, an extremely grave case, but just a grave case. And therefore, that doesn't, in theory, give the rights to the CSD, which is a, the equivalent to the sports ministry, to, to, to move, him, move him. But the president of the government said that that wasn't enough. And um, uh, that's a slightly awkward position to be in, I think, actually, because if the president of the government is saying, well, that's not enough. But if you've got a division of judiciary and executive, I'm not sure you can have the president of the government saying this is, you know, we, we don't accept this. The reality is I don't see a way in which he comes back. But I must admit, I don't know how, if you like, the kind of the final steps of this now get played out. In a way, it's already happened. In a way, he's already gone. And, and it does feel a little bit like he's kind of, you know, he talks about support across the country and all this sort of stuff there's no real evidence of that now i'm sure there are people who and there will be lots and lots of people who look at this and think this has gone too far this wasn't that bad and so on but there it's not like there's this groundswell of opinion that in his favor that he's talking about i think most people would rather he just kind of went away yeah a lot's been a lot was certainly made about how you know not many male footballers spoke up in support of of Jenny Hermoso or against Rubiales. The men's team have released a, a statement. Alvaro Morata read it in front of the rest of the Spain squad saying, expressing their regret and solidarity with the players whose success has been tarnished. Uh, we want to reject that we consider unacceptable behaviour on the part of Mr. Rubiales who's not lived up to the institution he represents. Has that, has that been um, positively received or not? Good question, because I think there is a sense that this was the right thing to do. But of course, immediately the response is, well, where were you two weeks ago? You know, it's, it's all well and good at doing it now. Now, in defence of not so much those individual players, but this kind of statement as a collective group of Spain's captains, this, of course, happens now because the Spain squad has come together. Just as uh, Luis de la Fuente's comments on this on Friday happened. Why? Because he was there to announce the Spain squad. Now, I don't know if that's actually a defence or, or, or an extra criticism because you could say, oh, right, I see. So you're only doing it now because you have to because you're being put in the public eye and this is a first thing. The, the, the question then, of course, becomes 
these players on an individual le level could have said something earlier. And this brings us back to Borja Iglesias, who's the only player who, well, the only player to whom it could genuinely have, have affected to come out and say, listen, I don't want to be selected for the Spain team while this goes on. Now, admittedly, the question is, while this goes on, what's the cutoff point? Is the removal of Rubiales sufficient to say, but, but at least this was a player who said something with real consequence, who said something that genuinely could impact upon him and say, actually, this isn't right. Um, and by the way, he's not in this Spain squad. Can we move on, Sid, to actually football and things that, that this pod, I think, was originally intended for many years ago when it began? It was a long time ago, man. That we know Jude Bellingham is a big fan of your work, Sid. Uh, are you as big a fan of his work? I tell you what, watching him so far this season, he's, he's exceptional. I mean, look, of course, I knew he was a very good player. I won't claim to have watched a huge amount of him in Germany, but, but what I saw of him was, oh, hey, this, this, he's de definitely got something very special. Um, but he's been, he's been phenomenal uh, for Real Madrid so far. And one of the things, I mean, there's lots of things that stand out. Obviously, the, the headline thing that stands out is the goals. And I actually have a very slight problem with the goals thing, which, which if you like, we'll come on to. But the thing that really stands out is that sense of total kind of, I'm the man. Total mastery of everything around him. I, I think part of that is, is the way that he carries himself in a physical sense. You know, he's tall, he's elegant, he's, he strides in a way that says, I've got this. But it's really interesting to watch teammates. And we're talking about Real Madrid here. You know, we're not talking about some crappy team from the third division. We're talking about Real Madrid. The way that teammates kind of are already slightly deferring to him. That they, they, that they look for him, that there's this sense of, wow, this guy's got it all, that he stands up and he takes that role. And, and that, that, of course, there's that slight borderline between at what point does the supreme confidence kind of tip over into, in, into a touch of arrogance. But I think you need a touch of that, that swagger. And I think he's playing really, really well from that point of view. And, and I think he understands as well, very well, the kind of the stage he's on, the way in which you manage the, the scenery, the way in which you manage the fans, the way that you respond to them, the way that you engage... And what he's done in terms of the, if you like, the, the communication side of things, well, that's not necessarily talking very much because he's doing the post-game stuff with Real Madrid TV, but, but nothing else. It's not like we're seeing him in press conferences and so on. But the communication with the stands, the way that he celebrates goals, um, all of that has been, been perfect so far. And the way he's playing is fantastic. Then, of course, you get to the goals. And, of course, the goals are what provide, if you like, a, a watertight argument, which is five goals in four games, um, I like this stat and I'm sorry because it sounds very cruel and it sounds like I'm deliberately picking on someone but the only player to play for Real Madrid who was ever more expensive than Bellingham was Eden Hazard Bellingham's now scored more goals for Real Madrid than Hazard ever did uh, <laughs> and, and you know that, that sort of doesn't matter but it's, it's about the shift in formation now I personally think and those of you who saw him more in Germany I'd, I'd be interested to know what you think that it's sort of a pity that he's playing so high up the pitch because I kind of like him to be yeah driving through the middle, which he still does a lot of that because he still drops and plays. But that role for him is, because you look at the goals as well, all five goals are kind of striker's goals, number nine's goals. So he's kind of, so, you know, Benzema's gone and they've just playing Vinicius and Rodrigo essentially up front and he's just behind them, which begs the question, perhaps not for now, but for a year's time, if Mbappe comes in, I mean, that's not a bad thing, but that might That will have to change. change. That yeah. probably will have to change. And, and, and you know, there's, we, we, we shouldn't hide... Um, we shouldn't hide, hide away from the fact that one of the reasons that, that Ancelotti has gone for this formation is because he's looked at his squad and thought, I've got lots of great midfielders and I've got no forwards. Not quite no forwards because Joselu came in in the summer, but Benzema went, Mbappe didn't come yet. And Madrid always thought he would come next summer. But there was that little 
bit of a hope that who knows, maybe the situation will open up the possibility of him coming now. Then you would have to restructure it. But but Ancelotti has talked about putting Bellingham in, in a role that suits him. And obviously so far Ancelotti's been proven right. I still have one, as I say, still have one or two doubts about that, but it's been proven right so far. Um, and, and, you know, very, very, very clearly so. But that's partly about not having the alternative. I think it was. I think it's interesting as well. Um, Vinicius is now out for six or seven weeks. Um, what was happening? You had Vinicius and Rodrigo playing up front. And I'm sorry to get all tactical because it's been quite boring when you do this. But anyway, you've got Vinicius and Rodrigo up front. Don't, don't tell Wilson that. <laughs> Wilson has spawned an entire industry of this. It's, it's his own fault. He's got no one to blame but himself. You've got the, the, the two up front who aren't really centre forwards. So what tends to happen when Bellingham is playing at the top of that midfield diamond is they split open and he goes through the middle and really does become the number nine. With Vinicius being injured at the weekend, the number nine was Josella, who really is a number nine. So that kind of ability to kind of for them to split and him to go through the middle was actually denied a little bit. And, and Bellingham was kind of spinning off to the right and going and playing and actually playing a little bit all over the place. But it's it's worked really, really well for him so far. You know, he's got he's got five goals and an assist directly involved in 75 percent of Madrid's goals. I mean, to give you the numbers in terms of the decisiveness of it. So his first game, they win 2-0. He gets the second goal early enough that this is the one that ends the game. You know, this is the one that kills it. He's had um, an equaliser and the goal that puts him in the lead in a 3-1 win. He's had the single goal in a 1-0 win quite late in the game. And now he's got the 2-1 in a, the second goal in the 2-1 win in the 95th minute. Basically, everything he's done has been vital. There's no stat packing at all. Yeah. Um, Sonny says, does Barry know who Sergio Ramos plays for? Sevilla. Yeah, well done, Barry. A point for you. All things are saved. That's a nice... Him coming back is nice, but not as nice as Santi Cazorla, right, Sid? Which, oh, man. Going to Oviedo, it must be... I mean, did you did you cry? Uh, I didn't actually cry, but I was very, 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 very excited. You monster, Sid. You monster. <laughs> I was very, very, very excited. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I could literally just bang on. Well, I, that wouldn't be new, I know. But I could just bang on and on and on, on about this. I just think it's brilliant. I think it's, I think it's great. Santi Cazorla, for those who don't know, I mean, this is him going back to Oviedo. But it's, it's him going back to Oviedo for whom he never actually played. So he joined Oviedo at nine. 30 years later, he might get the chance to actually play for them because Oviedo were in financial crisis. They're a second division team when he was playing for the under-19s and actually played a game in the summer of 2003 for the for the B team in the stadium. So he's played once in, in, in Oviedo's current stadium. But Oviedo then had this financial crisis where they were relegated on the pitch. They went down from the second division to the second division B, which is four groups across 80-odd teams, regionalised. So it's, it's kind of, it's anywhere from the third tier to the seventh tier. Then, because of their financial crisis, they got an administrative relegation forced by the league down to the third division, which I think at the time was 17 divisions and 360 teams. So you're talking about them playing in part pitches. The financial crisis meant they basically folded all of their B teams. The B team became the A team. And Cathola moved on to Villarreal, so never got to play for the team that, that he wanted to play for. This would have happened sooner um, if, if he had had his way, but it, but it wasn't possible. Um, so now it finally has. He has asked for minimum wage because you're not allowed to pay him nothing in, in the second division. You've got to give him minimum wage. And the only demand he made was that the shirt sales, uh, he doesn't want any image rights. He's not asked for any image rights. The shirt sales, 10% of shirt sales has to go directly back into the club's academy. The idea there, of course, being the next time there's a Santi Cazorla, he doesn't have to go. Out of interest, Sid, what, what is the minimum wage? Is it like 10 euro an hour? Or? 
in the second in the in the second division, I think it's nine just just short of ninety thousand, or maybe just overnight. I think it might be ninety thousand eight hundred, something like that. Uh, in the first division, I think it's around about one hundred and seventy thousand. I think La Liga's rules, by the way, I did ask this earlier in the summer. La Liga La Liga's financial fair play rules. Um, how do I put this? They build in the assumption that you're cheating and lying to them. So because clubs do that. So, for example, if a club suddenly says, and this, the reason why I mentioned this is that, of course, this was part of the discussion when, when we were talking about Messi maybe going back to Barcelona. And part of the discussion was Barcelona can't afford to pay him. But what if he says, I'll take minimum wage? Essentially, the league's rules like, we don't believe that Messi's on minimum wage. And so, and, and essentially, you have to have it be a kind of, it, it, it's judged by what he was on before and what we could truly believe he would actually be on. In Cathola's case, because of his age and because of everything that goes with it, I think the league actually accepted that, yes, he really is on minimum wage. Honesty, finally. A good, good guys and honesty in football. It's amazing. This is where we discover that he's got like a bin bag full of cash in the back of his car now. Oh, don't. Hey, cheers, Sid. You can go away now. Pleasure. Cheerio. Thanks. Sid Lowe out in Spain. And that'll do for part two. Back in a sec uh, with any other business. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Nick, uh, you are the Guardian's new European sports correspondent. What does that mean? Yeah, it, uh, it means I now know a lot about padel and lacrosse and uh, darts. Um, no, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a sort of a 80, 80% football gig, I would say. And it's to, um, we're, we're, we're doing a, a big expansion of our European coverage, which I think kicks off, I'm right in saying, on the 20th of this month, we're launching a digital European edition. Um, the idea being to to both bring interesting stories from around the continent to the existing audience, but also to um, to widen the audience um, over the continent and serve the outstanding audience that that we do have through, um, throughout Europe, which I think is only growing. So hopefully we've got a bit of license to roam and go into corners where we might not have been before and look at them, look at stories, both, both from sort of better known and lesser known countries and institutions and, um, shed a bit more light on them. So that is uh, is part of my job, and it's involved quite a bit of travelling so far. I'm also tomorrow going to Berlin and then to Poland for a couple of things. And and, and I hope that people 
especially our continental audience, enjoy what we're trying to do. We've, we've got correspondents in you know, a lot of the major sectors, not only sport, who are across this. Um, and if anyone's listening and ever has a good story tip, then send it and um, Wilson can write about it or something. <laughs> you recently went to Hatay Sport uh, in Turkey, um, which is, I don't know how close that was to the that huge earthquake that affected that area. Um, but But what was that like? Mm, it was just after six months, um, sorry, just before six months since it happened in, um, in February. So I went out um, about six weeks ago, I think it was now. So Hato Spore, um, they're, they're from the Hato region in kind of um, southern Turkey by the border with Syria. The earthquake was absolutely devastating. And as people may remember from the time, they were one of a couple of teams that had to withdraw from last season's Turkish um, Super League. And... There was a lot of doubt about whether they could reform in in their current guys. Their um, their city, which I'll, I'll I'll come to, is completely ravaged and and uh, destroyed. Basically, it's a wonderful old old city with old mosques and churches, most of which have, have now gone, sadly. Um, so the task was whether they built the club back up again, and they have done. And the club invited me to to their pre-season training camp which was in a lovely mountainous area of northern turkey in this sort of spa resort owned by fenerbahce which the manager volkan demirel who is a goalkeeper a lot of people might remember from watching turkey and fenerbahce down the years and had close links there so they helped um and meanwhile a lot of things were going on going on behind the scenes to make sure that the club could compete so they are now sharing a stadium in Mersin, which is about four hours drive from Antakya, their city. Um, and a lot of people whose homes were, were destroyed in Antakya basically moved to, um, to Mersin. So it's basically a home stadium for them. They've built a new training ground over in Mersin, which will open soon, for example, and they're going to be based there. So amazingly, against the odds, given, given that, you know, you're imagining this earthquake, which very sadly killed, of course, for the former Newcastle player as well, um, Christian Atsu, who was trapped beneath the rubble of, a, of the building he lived in. Um, he just scored the winning goal in um, in a game, and then nine hours later, the earthquake happens. And he was one of, I think it was seven members of, um, of the club staff and players who, who, who were tragically killed. Um, you had other guys who were um, trapped beneath the rubble, took hours or in some cases even days um, to get out. You had a, a real apocalyptic scene. But those who survived ended up being scattered around Turkey, bits of Europe, a lot of them thinking, well, this isn't going to happen. The club's um, not going to reform. What am I going to do? A lot of them couldn't even think about football for several months. And it, it was largely the efforts of um, Volkan Demirel, who was, who was like a movie star in Turkey and also in the way he carries himself as well. He's got such a presence and such an aura. Um, he basically kind of used his charisma and standing to pull in loads of sponsors and lots of help and lots of favours and lots of money and lots of goodwill to get that club moving again. The more that their football club can keep performing well and can keep and can keep giving them a presence on the sort of national and hopefully global stage if you know publications like ours and podcasts like ours talk about it, then people might at least sort of wonder, oh, what's the situation down there in Antakya? Is it good? Um, the answer is no. A lot of help is still needed. And if, yeah, if football can 
assist, then great. And it's it's really heartening to see them up and running and competing in the Turkish top flight again. I I think that they could do quite well actually. Um, uh, so yeah, very thought provoking trip, and I'd encourage anyone to read a little bit more about their story if possible. Yeah, um, it's obviously on the Guardian website, or if you just search uh, Nick's uh, Twitter handle at Nick Ames eighty two. Uh, you'll see all of his stuff. Um, um, slightly less important, but obviously tactics are important, Wilson, whatever Sid may say. And Mike says, I'd love to hear Wilson's tactical analysis of Ange Ball, how and why it works. I obviously would love to hear this. Now, I'm slightly worried this is almost becoming a Tottenham-based podcast. And even they're not even my first team, I feel guilty for that. But he has sort of, he has done something so far, is remarkable stretching it? I don't know. I'd say it's pretty remarkable. This was a change of mood. I, mean, I was at the Manchester United game, and that was a, it was a really interesting atmosphere because there's some protests about ticket prices, and you could feel it could have gone, you know, with Kane having just gone, it could have gone either way. And then, you know, not actually a great first 25 minutes in that game, but, but once they started playing, second half especially, they were really good. So I think there's two things that really impressed me um, so far about Postecoglou. So the first is the way his substitutions have possibly impacted the game. So that game against United, um, yeah, Spurs get the goal, United come back into it, and you sort of think, oh, yeah, United getting a bit of momentum. And then he brought on Ben Davis and uh, Perisic, and immediately the... The, the nature of the game changes and, and Tottenham are actually very, very comfortable and get the second goal. Similarly at Bournemouth, you just sort of thought, ah, oh, Bournemouth maybe is starting to get back into this. And again, a couple of substitutions and it just quelled that. So his in-game substitutions, I think, have been excellent so far. So he's obviously got that capacity to to read the game and be decisive and, and make the right decisions, uh, which is a thing I think a lot of even very good managers can find difficult. Uh, but then the use of James Madison against Bournemouth, I thought was really interesting, the way he, he dropped deeper, uh, the way he is just sort of tweaking the the the, the, the basic system, um, you know, moving Son into the middle, I think is a really interesting move. Don't know how long term that is because you'd say the thing they lack is a centre forward because I don't think Richarlison is a centre forward. I don't think he's got the the thing about Richarlison. He seems to me he's like the the opposite of Meza Özil, that he he try, he almost tries too hard. He always looks like he's yeah. I've got to run. I've got to chase. I've got to. Run. And the problem <laughs> yeah. is by doing that. He just chases the ball, and there's times you think, I just, it's just like a sort of six-year-old playing football, isn't it? Well, quite an angry, stroppy six. I guess an angry, I mean, stroppy. I mean, that is yeah. quite possible. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I, I think that sort of that tenacity to to, to maybe give it its politest uh, term is useful when you're playing wide and tracking your fullback and pressing. Maybe centre forward, you need something a little bit colder, a little bit more clinical. So yeah, as I say, the the opposite of Özil. Özil was always a bit too languid, and he's always a bit too intense. Uh, so yeah, um, Son as a centre forward maybe is a long term solution. I suspect they probably want. Uh, I mean, maybe Brennan Johnson. I'm not sure he's necessarily an out centre forward, but maybe a more orthodox centre forward with with Son wide again is the way they'll they'll go. But it could be a solution for now. Yeah, could put in a big bid for English starlet Evan Ferguson. Anyway, <laughs> Simon says, uh, will we get a mention of the Dave Kitson derby today? Huge Monday night football. Another win for Cambridge United, sixth now in League One. For Jiri Okinaberi coming off the bench and smashing it home. Um, for people who don't care about Cambridge already, there was quite a good moment where former Cambridge player Harvey Nibs um, was playing for Reading and he hit the bar and it bounced down. It looked like it might have crossed the line or not. This is like the 95th minute. So he ran off to celebrate and then he sort of put his arms down to go, oh, and 
obviously had no idea if he if the goal hadn't been given or he was choosing not to celebrate against his former club. So I was just sitting there going, I don't, I still don't know what the decision is. But fortunately, the ball hadn't crossed the line, so we won. Uh, Thomas says Chelsea won't sign anyone over the age of twenty five. What is the age limit for members of the pod? How old is too old for Football Weekly? Are we ageist, Barry? Do you think there are no? Who's the elder statesman? Philippe, is Philippe of the. Uh, much so. Yes. Uh, I'd no. like to think there's quite a lot of people who are older than their years, though. <laughs> everyone? Is it everyone? Yeah, possibly, yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think, if anything, we, we don't have enough young whippersnappers. Yes, and anyone who is sort of young, we just patronise them by going, you don't remember any of this. And then they don't want to come back yeah. on. Well, I'm, I don't want young whippersnappers on because... Uh, then they might be really good. Mm, that's true. I'll be the first to get edged out. Mm, Jeff says, post-pod, was it actually established why Barry is buying Doll's House Furniture online? <laughs> um, Emma, but Emily got in touch to say, apropos of Barry talking about Doll's House Furniture on the pod, I have a miniature shelf of football books in my Doll's House. Uh, the way she says it makes it sound like everybody has a Doll's House. Right? <laughs> I started thinking, do I? am I the odd one out by not having one? Featuring, of course, inverting the pyramid. I mean, I don't know, Wilson, how chuffed you are with this oh very um, it's an amazing it's, ama- it's a very it's touching thing amazing it's like uh, she's she's put a little what is that a nickel or a dime i don't know the, the a coin next to it to show you how big it is it's like it's like a centimeter just over a centimeter tiny inverting the pyramid and next to a leeds united liverpool program from the 60s or something and nick hornby's fever pitch and unseen academicals by terry pratchett which i presume is that is that is the bible of football tactics for for most people. I, re- I didn't realize. Sorry, I, I I I didn't look at that properly. I assume it was about Hamilton Academic. <laughs> sorry, I hadn't realized it's Terry Pratchett book. No. Um, finally, uh, Matt says just to let you know that Max, you committed sacrilege on the pod by saying Nat Lofthouse played for Preston. Don't judge me. Uh, Wilson um, it's like me saying Wes Houlihan enjoyed a great final few years at Peterborough I've written a book to re-educate you he's written Lofty Nat Lofthouse England's Lion of Vienna 452 games for Bolton 255 goals 33 for England 30 goals would it have been worse if I'd said Blackburn Wilson to, 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 in my defence it was just a throwaway line I obviously didn't I wasn't saying he definitely played for Preston it was just a kind of nod to the 60s basically I, I did actually think you were wrong but wasn't confident <laughs> enough to pipe yeah. up I don't know who Bolton's main rivals are but um, I, don't, I don't know also I haven't, haven't got the end of my this pod yet did you mention Chris Riggs going for Sunderland on Saturday no but someone did get in touch to say that the combined age of a Sunderland goal assist and goal scorer is 35 you know and how old do you feel it's I think two it might humans. be 34 actually wow. is, is, unless Jason Bennett's had his 19th weather. but he's a set, basically apart from after Jude Bellingham he's the youngest player ever to score in the championship and Jude Bellingham's brother Joe he's started very for a 17 year old he looks amazing scored twice against Rotherham so I'm very worried about just how young this London team is I think we we need kind of a, a couple of older players but it is very exciting to see all these you need to sign Philippe yeah. don't you, you need to that's, sign that, that's why Jordan Henderson yeah. should have gone back because uh, I, mean, I don't think Corey Evans is, is coming back, unfortunately. I think that injury might might have done him. So we do need somebody at the back of midfield. No, we're getting into the weeds now of Sunderland and you know, that's sort of where everyone loses their will to live, don't they? Corey, Corey Evans has been a great servant of Northern Ireland and if his career is coming to an end, I think that's very, very sad. No, you're right. Well, I, obviously now I feel bad for telling you to sort of be quiet. But look, we've, we've talked for too long, but you've all been very interesting. Uh, and that'll do for today thank you Nick thank you Max Uh, thanks Wilson cheers thank you Uh, thanks Barry you're welcome Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. 
This is The Guardian. 